This morning's reading is taken from Philippians 2, verse 12 to 30. That's page 831 in the Church Bible. The book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, And almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. This is God's word. Thank you, Ruby, very much indeed. Well, let's keep that passage open and uh, let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for giving us a clear and living word. We pray that you would help us according to our need, that you would remove the barriers that prevent us from hearing, from trusting and obeying. And we do ask that your word to us this morning would do us good 
and would cause us to honour you. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, let me ask you, do you think you could spot a Christian at a distance? Uh, for example, if you're in your car on the M3 or wherever it is, could you spot another Christian driver? Or maybe when COVID restrictions permit, uh, you're in the soccer stadium down at Green Point with thousands of football fans. Uh, could you spot a Christian soccer fan? Uh, or maybe you're in Cavendish on Saturday morning doing some shopping. Do you think you might be able to identify a Christian family out shopping together? Could you spot a Christian at a distance? And I ask that because the burden of our passage this morning is to impress upon us that gospel Christians stand out from the crowd. I guess, of course, how easy it is to spot them will depend to, certain, uh, to a certain extent on circumstances. In some situations, I guess it might be almost impossible. But in other situations, it ought to be relatively easy during times of persecution, for example, uh, or perhaps when people are really terrified about the pandemic, or maybe when people are worried or anxious about their job or about their exams. I guess in those circumstances, spotting a Christian in a crowd should actually become a bit easier. Now, in uh, Philippians, Paul, as you know, is writing to a church that he loves. Uh, he thinks of them as being gospel partners with him. And, of course, it was a church that Paul had been involved in planting amidst a great deal of opposition. So perhaps you remember that in Acts chapter 16, uh, we're told that some of the people in the town were so terribly offended by the things that Paul and Silas were doing, that they had them brought before the magistrates. And the charges that they brought against Paul and Silas are actually very revealing. Their accusers said, and I quote, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Uh, and as a result, Paul and Silas were flogged, you remember, and thrown into prison. Now that, I think, is telling us that in those days, becoming a Christian meant that you were automatically considered to be an enemy of the state. Because Rome said, live this way. Jesus Christ said, live that way. And the question for every would-be disciple was this. Well, which king do I follow? Do I follow Caesar? Do I follow Jesus? Because in certain very important and obvious areas of life, I can't do both. And uh, under that kind of pressure, Paul, I think, would say it's actually pretty easy to spot the Christian. Because gospel Christians stand out from the crowd. Now that's the big idea in our passage this morning, and the question is how? How can gospel Christians stand out from the crowd? 
I mean, it's obviously not about um, external things like wearing a T-shirt with a Christian slogan on it uh, or being nice or being clever. Uh, no doubt there's a, a place for those things. But they don't take us to the heart of the matter when it comes to understanding how it is that gospel Christians stand out from the crowd. So in our passage, the Apostle Paul isolates three priorities to focus our minds. Number one, priority number one, work out your salvation. Priority number two, cut out your complaining. And priority number three, look out for gospel role models. So that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Number one, work out your salvation as God works in you. That's the first priority. Look down with me, please, at verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul begins by noting the fact that the Philippian Christians are not the kind of people who only obey when the pastor's in the room. Uh, I guess some of you know people who call themselves Christians who are really good at putting on a bit of a show uh, of being obedient when the pastor or one of the elders is around. But the Philippians, you see, were not like that. Yes, they did obey when Paul was with them, but they continued to live lives of obedience when Paul was locked up in prison in Rome, hundreds of miles away. And the very first word in the passage tells us why. It's the word, therefore. And uh, as every Bible reader knows, when you come across the word, therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. And in this particular case, of course, it's pointing us back to the wonderful poem that we looked at together last Sunday morning about Jesus and his humble obedience in going to the cross for us. So that's what lies behind Paul's instructions to the Philippians this morning. He's saying, in view of everything I've just said about Jesus and his marvelous example of obedience, so now, verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, immediately, if we're good Calvinists, a number of questions pop into our minds. Because at first sight, that command seems to challenge everything that we believe about being saved by grace through faith. Because Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, people today have got lots of different ways of thinking about how people get saved. <clears throat> and I've uh, tried to summarize some of them in a slide, which I hope is going to appear on the screen for us. So there we are, there's the slide. 
You'll notice one column is headed God and the other column is headed us. Now the religion approach to salvation, which is the first line there, says that getting saved is essentially 0% God and 100% us. Uh, So the idea there is that you do this and you do that and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you keep on doing that and in the end you will eventually earn your salvation. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you this morning that that is not the Christian way. But neither is it what we might call the relaxed approach to salvation. Because the relaxed approach to salvation says it's um, 0% us and 100% God. And that, if you like, is the uh, let go and let God approach. Uh, Or as a friend of mine likes to describe it, don't wrestle, just nestle. Um, uh, You know, as if getting saved is rather like uh, relaxing in a warm jacuzzi. You know, the idea there is, you know, we're just going to, we're going to nestle into the love of God. There's nothing really for you to do at all. Now, of course, that has got to be wrong, hasn't it? Because the New Testament everywhere says that we're called to respond. Um, Equally, um, it's not the halfway house approach, where it's 50% God and 50% us. So this is the person who says, yes, we're saved by grace. That's the way into the kingdom. God's done his part. But then the way to stay in the kingdom so that we eventually get to heaven is by works. So it's kind of 50-50. Well, that's not right either. Because the gospel approach to salvation is 100% God and 100% us. So God begins our salvation and he carries it on all the way through to to completion. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 6. So in the words of Newton's famous hymn, uh, we sing that grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will bring me home. But you see, that is not the relaxed approach to salvation. It's not, don't wrestle, just nestle. Because God also calls us to labor for him from the very beginning of our salvation all the way through our Christian lives to the very end. Because to begin with, we have to respond to the gospel call to repent and believe. That's something we have to do. And then we continue to respond to the gospel call every single day of our lives by putting sin to death, me number one, and putting Christ first. Now that, you see, is what Paul means when he says we are to work out our salvation. It is a workout. But why then does Paul say that the, at the end of the verse that we've got to do this with fear and trembling? And again, at first sight, that's a fairly strange way to think about your salvation. I think if I was to ask you for a show of hands this morning as to how many of you think of your salvation as a process that involves fear and trembling, I wonder how many hands would go up. Not many, I suspect. 
Because salvation sounds really wonderful to us, and it is. It's a joyful experience. Fear and trembling don't really somehow seem to fit. And anyway, doesn't the Bible say that uh, where our relationship with the Lord is concerned, that perfect love casts out fear? Well, yes, it does. Praise God for that. And it also says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because God's wrath has been totally consumed in the death of Christ on the cross. So the idea here, I think, is that the fear and trembling is actually a response to verse 13. Have a look at verse 13, where Paul says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I think the idea is that when we actually wake up to the fact that Almighty God who is awesome in power and might and so holy that no one can see him and live. When we wake up to the fact that that all-powerful holy God is at work in us to will and to act according to his good purpose, well then fear and trembling does actually become an entirely natural response. Because you see, this great, holy, and awesome God really is at work in you personally and individually to keep you going as a Christian so that you press on all the way to the end. He's working in you to will. That means to develop in you gospel desires in your head and in your heart. And he's also working in you to act, that is, to carry out those gospel desires in your life. That is God's good purpose for you. Which means, doesn't it, rather amazingly, that we can do what we want to do. And we can do what pleases the Lord. And I hope I don't need to tell you that that is fundamentally different, both from what you wanted and from what you actually did before you were converted. So now, you see, it's not a case of saying, oh yes, well maybe one Sunday I'll begin to give God what he wants, but right now that's rather inconvenient. Because now, everything's changed. God has given us new desires. He's given us new priorities. And I want you please to notice this, that here Paul is addressing all the Christians in the church. It's not just the keen types. In verse 12, do you notice this? He's addressing my dear friends. So it's all of them. So I hope you can see that if you're a gospel Christian, the idea of blending in with the crowd is actually not an option for you anymore. Gospel Christians stand out from the crowd, not by what we wear, not by the fact that we're not wrestling, we're just nestling into the love of God, not because we grew up in a Christian home, but because we're giving it our all. We're loving the Lord with our all. We're running after him. We're co-laboring with one another, remembering at the same time 
God himself is at work in us. And when that is happening, when that begins to happen, so we begin to stand out from the crowd. So work out your salvation, says Paul, as God works in you. But then secondly, he says, cut out your complaining and shine like stars. Now, last week we saw that having a gospel mindset involves putting other people first. And uh, I know that when you hear a sermon on that, that there's a part of all of us, including me, which says, well, do I really have to do that? Uh, Because, Lord, you're telling me to put this person first, but quite honestly, I don't think you realize what they're like. And uh, then immediately we start to look for all kinds of reasons not to put them first. And uh, we find ourselves saying things like this, well, you know, I, I can't put him or her first because of what he said or because of what she did. Lord, you can't really mean that. Well, Paul's got there ahead of us. Look down with me at verse 14. Verse 14. Do everything, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. So, if you're going to stand out from the crowd, says Paul, you are to cut out your complaining and shine like a star. Now again, the idea that if we do this, it can make you blameless and pure, well, that's a rather difficult idea, isn't it? Because, you know, we need to be clear what that means. Is he saying, cut out the complaining and arguing and you will be blameless and pure? Um, Does that mean that we can earn our righteousness in some way? No, I don't think it does mean that. The idea is that if you do it, your witness... And if you're in ministry, your ministry will be above reproach. The the word that's translated blameless there is actually the word that Paul used to describe his own ministry in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You don't need to turn to it. Uh, The reference is 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 10, where he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Now, obviously, Paul is not saying there that he was perfect, because in another place he says that he was the chief of sinners. But he is saying that his ministry to the Thessalonians was above reproach. It was pleasing to God. And so the point that he's making to the Philippian Christians is that they were to live differently from the crowd so that their witness in the surrounding culture would be above reproach. Now, I've been very struck by the way that Paul encourages the Philippians then and you and me this morning to get on with this. 
Because what he does is he takes three key phrases out of the Old Testament with specific reference to the Old Testament people of God. I'm going to give you 10 seconds to look at verses 14 to 16 and see if you can spot them. Three verses, sorry, three phrases that come straight out of the Old Testament. 10 seconds, off you go. Right, time's up. Well, the first of those phrases is complaining and arguing in verse 12. And I'm sure you know that that phrase was used all over the place in the Old Testament to describe Israel's behavior during their years in the wilderness. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians is, don't be like them. You know, God rescued them from slavery in Egypt with mighty signs and wonders He gave them a brand new life. He gave them wonderful promises for the future. He sustained them with food, manna and quail, and also water in the wilderness. But they never for a moment stopped complaining. And Paul says, don't be like them. Instead, verse 15, be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation. Now that's the second phrase that comes straight out of the Old Testament. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. You don't need to look at it now. But that is the song of Moses as Israel are standing on the borders of the promised land and they're about to go in. And talking about Israel, Moses says this. They have acted corruptly toward God to their shame They are no longer his children, but a warped and crooked generation. Now that is exactly the same phrase that Paul uses in Philippians when he talks about a crooked and depraved generation in Philippi. But what's he doing? Well, everybody knew that Israel, the Old Testament people of God, grumbled and complained in the wilderness, and that Moses had described them as being a crooked and depraved generation. But what Paul is doing is using that phrase in Philippians to describe the world, to describe the surrounding culture. So he's saying, do everything without complaining and arguing. That's the first phrase from the Old Testament. Then he says, so that you can become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation. In other words, Christians, do not be like the world today. Because the world today is just like the Old Testament people of God. And instead, what are they to do? They are to shine like stars. Now that actually is the third phrase that comes straight out of the Old Testament. You don't need to turn to it now, you can look it up later, but it's Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Daniel's prophecy uh, speaks of a future hope for the people of God at a time when they were being persecuted in the most appalling way. And Daniel says this, Daniel 12, verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens 
and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, friends, when we put those three phrases together, what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, don't be like complaining, arguing Israel, because they were just like the pagan Roman world in Philippi. And instead, your calling is to shine like stars, to live as the true people of God. Now, what is that going to involve? How are we to shine? Verse 16, can we all see verse 16 in our Bibles? Shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now, interestingly, that phrase, hold out, could equally well be translated, hold on to. And I think it's highly likely that Paul has got both ideas in his mind. Because in order to hold out the word of life effectively, we first of all need to be holding on to it ourselves. And in any event, shining like stars means holding out the word of life to people living in darkness. So, friends, the unmistakable, unarguable challenge in this section is to cut out your complaining and to shine like a star. And I wonder what that challenge might mean for you perhaps this morning. Is it perhaps a critical spirit about church? Maybe you find yourself thinking, you know, do we really have to look at the Bible in this terribly detailed way? Um, the sermons, sermons are far too long. Sermons are far too short. Why do we have so many songs? Why don't we have enough songs? Why can't we sing more traditional songs? we sing more contemporary songs? And do we perhaps complain about the Christian life, even though we are Christians and at some level of our existence we know what God has done for us? Because that's what the Israelites were doing with Moses, wasn't it? You know, they were saying, look, you bring us out of Egypt into this wilderness. Quite honestly, life was a great deal better before we were saved. And as the opposition increased in Philippi, we can imagine the Christians in that church being tempted to think like that and saying to themselves, well, you know, does following Jesus really have to involve turning our backs on Rome, maybe losing our jobs, maybe losing our friends? Uh, does it really mean putting other people first all the time? Sounds a bit keen. Life was actually rather easier before we were saved. You know, friends, you and I can so easily drift into that way of thinking. Do I really want to give money to gospel work? I had to work really hard to earn it, and who knows whether I'll even have a job next week. Or we, particularly at the moment, we face health issues, and uh, we complain, why me? Why can't I be free from this lingering pain? Why can't I have the energy that I used to have five years ago? I was thinking about this this week because I've had a slightly sore back. And uh, I was thinking as I get older and as I watch my friends getting older, 
You know, I've noticed that we tend to go in one of two directions. Either we turn in on ourselves and we become actually, if we're honest, rather bitter about our circumstances and, uh, you know, the way things are in our lives. Or we become more alive and more excited about what God has done for us in the gospel and the marvelous future that he's prepared for us. But you see, when we understand, friends, that our complaining is seriously provoking to God, and it actually makes us no different at all from the Old Testament people of God in the wilderness, what happens when we wake up to that? What happens? Well, as we resist the temptation to complain and to argue, we suddenly look different. And suddenly, it actually becomes very obvious who the Christians are in the crowd. Because they're the ones who are not complaining or arguing or bickering. And instead, they're starting to shine like stars. Now, of course, uh, that is no substitute for speaking out the word of life. We've got to be doing that. But can I also say we need to be rather careful here? Because it's very easy, isn't it, to fall into the trap of thinking, well, as long as I speak the word of life to my friends, I can tick the box, I'm shining like a star. But can I say that whilst you might actually be speaking the word of life verbally, non-verbally, by your body language, perhaps by your attitude, you're proclaiming, actually, Jesus is not Lord, I am. Because, you see, we shine like stars, not just by the words that we say, but by our heart attitude as well. So do you complain? How can Christians stand out from the crowd? Well, cut out your complaining, and instead, shine like a star. And lastly, very, very briefly, look out for gospel role models. Look out for gospel role models. And I love this because, you see, the Apostle Paul doesn't just leave us thinking to ourselves, well, these standards are terribly high. You know, I'm not really too sure I could do this. No. Instead, he gives us three role models to follow. Three examples of people who actually did stand out from the crowd. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. We'll go through this very quickly, and you can discuss their examples in your home groups this week. First, Paul, the gospel leader, verses 17 and 18. He says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul was a gospel leader. The people in Philippi knew that because Paul had planted the church. But you see, he was also a servant leader. He didn't lord it over other people. You know, he rejoices over other Christians when he, he sees them doing well, which he does in this letter. And he calls us to do the same 
even when we're suffering. And of course, the apostle was definitely suffering when he wrote this. Because you see, in the language of those verses, the idea of being poured out like a drink offering, well, that's picking up Old Old Testament language of sacrifice, isn't it, from the temple. And that's appropriate, because at this point, Paul is looking, very probably, at a death sentence. So that's Paul, the gospel leader. But then there's Timothy, the gospel preacher. Verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You see, Timothy had labored with Paul in the work of the gospel. He'd planted churches with Paul, and for some time he'd been the lead pastor in the church at Ephesus. But, you see, Timothy wasn't all talk. Paul says in verse 20, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Because you see, Timothy is the preacher who loves people. What a marvelous example for anybody considering gospel ministry. You know, it is a great thing, a very great thing, to teach the Bible. And as you know very well, Africa needs plenty of competent, persuasive Bible teachers. But friends, ministry is far more than Bible teaching. It also involves loving people. And Timothy, I think, is a great example, a great model of somebody who stood out from the crowd by doing both. So you've got Paul, the gospel leader. You've got Timothy, the gospel preacher. And thirdly and lastly, you've got Epaphroditus, who I'm calling the gospel gopher. Uh, Verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Can you see there that Epaphroditus is the gospel messenger boy, isn't he? He, He's the gospel gopher who goes back and forth between the church in Philippi 
and Paul in prison in Rome. What did that involve? Turn over quickly to chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. That's a very good example, isn't it, of Epaphroditus, the messenger boy, the servant, the laborer. And notice that he's very clearly loved by the Apostle Paul, isn't he? Paul says, honor him, give him credit for what he's been doing. But notice also that Epaphroditus is not the upfront guy. No, he's working behind the scenes. And he gets on with his work consistently and faithfully for the sake of the gospel. And that's why Paul says in verse 29, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men and women like him. So you see, I think Epaphroditus is a great challenge to those people who think, yep, I want to serve the Lord, I want to be a gospel leader like Paul or a gospel preacher like Timothy, I want to be the upfront person. And maybe that is your calling. But maybe it's simply to serve faithfully in a less flashy and obvious way. You know, people like that are absolutely essential. No local church can function without them. And as you do continue to serve faithfully in that way, like Epaphroditus, so you begin to stand out from those servants who are always complaining and arguing. And in his case, that service nearly cost him his life. So let me ask you, how are you going to stand out as a Christian this week? In today's culture, I think it's really difficult. Uh, there are so many temptations, aren't there, not to do it. So we need all the encouragement we can get. And Paul here, I think, has given us three very practical charges to get us pointing in the right direction. Work out your salvation as God works in you. Cut out your complaining and shine like a star. And look out for gospel role models and follow their example. Well, let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for this tremendous challenge from Paul. Those gospel Christians, we are to stand out from the crowd. Please help us to do that this week. Help us to work out our salvation as you work in us. Help us to give our very best energies to you and to the gospel. Help us to cut out complaining and arguing, and in so doing, to shine like stars, to look different. Our world, our society, 
our media are propped up by complaining. Help us not to join in with that attitude. But may we be different, full of joy and hope in the gospel and all the good things that you're doing in our lives. And thank you, Lord, for those you've put across our paths who are doing these things without complaining and who are such wonderful examples to us. So hear our prayers, we pray, for Christ's sake.